All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for another day to worship you through the study of your word. What a magnificent time this is for all of us in this particular country to realize your grace and your love most of all. What a wonderful time of encouragement, understanding that prophecy is being fulfilled as we pray this prayer to you this morning even. May each of us learn to live in the now, living for today, for your Son, to your glory, Father. And may we be the lights on the hill that you've chosen us to be. May we embrace all that you've made us to be in Christ. We do pray for those not with us this morning that they partake in this message as well. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message is a continuation of the most pivotal series I've ever taught from behind the pulpit, uh, the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. We are on part 89. If you've missed any of these parts, please, I encourage you with everything I've got to get them. There's so much packed into these lessons uh, that you just got to get them or else... Even a lesson like this morning, as cohesive as it might seem to your soul, if you're missing something from a previous lesson, then you're going to miss out on something that the Spirit wanted to compound, let's say, in your soul. So please, uh, pick up those other lessons. That's why we go through all this trouble. I mean, we've got thousands of dollars of technical equipment in the church so that you are able to watch these videos or the odd, listen to the audios even. Greg does a nice job putting them on podcast faithfully so that if you have an iPod, you can listen to these things with your iPod. There's a lot of technology um, that goes into recording these lessons so that you have the ability afterwards, if you haven't been able to grab every lesson, to listen and do that thing. So enough of that. Um, this past week's lesson began with a big picture theme Trust in the process. Trust in the process. Sanctification is a process, from the manhood side of things at least. Um, it was at salvation. It was a conversion process for many of us. Uh, it means that the gospel took some time even to sort of sink in. And that idea of being saved, even though God's gavel, His judgment on the subject of your salvation is a split second in time, the conversion process, as we've learned, may take some time. For some people, it could take years even. But this idea of the process continues even after salvation into our sanctification. So the Spirit's been saying, trust in this process, knowing that it's by God's grace. You know, like Paul says, I, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a very important, pivotal thing for all of us to remember in this process. In particular, trust in the supernatural God of the universe. For example, when it comes to God's sovereignty versus your free will, 
in many ways, it's actually better that we don't understand it fully because it demands faith. Now, the fact that something like that, and that's just one instance of innumerable, the fact that it demands faith is actually a very good thing. Why? Because of what Scripture says. Hebrews 11.6 on the board. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So isn't that an interesting thing? That in the realm of what we don't understand as rational beings exists this thing called faith that's given to us by the grace of God. And then it's that very gift that He gives to us, free of charge, that pleases Him. In that way, that's why we say we're vessels of mercy. Vessels. Our cup has to be filled with grace. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So this whole thing, we need to trust in the process. And as we were pondering the point on the board, the Spirit gave us an old friend to add to the mix. Go to Romans 8.28. If we're going to trust in the process, let's consider Romans 8.28. It's fundamental to this trust that we're meant to have. Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, speaking of trusting in the process, and we know that God causes all things, not some things, not maybe some things, all things, to work together for good to those who love God. Those who love Him, obviously, are believers. For those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And if you're a believer, you have been called, and that's that. And so everything that He works out in your soul is for good. All things, then, can mean a multitude of practical realities in our lives, frankly. I mean, it's easy to wax poetic, like... You know, God takes care of everything and all things work out for good. And you're like, la, 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 and, you know, kumbaya. But there's actually a practical reality to experiential sanctification, as we've been learning. It's not just waxing poetic. It's not just pie in the sky. Isn't that lovely that, you know, some God is looking out for my best interests? No. He's actually changed you. Holy. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. He's actually changed you. And part of experiential sanctification is in understanding that thing. So all things can mean a multitude of practical realities in our lives, frankly, from, let's say, keeping this local assembly up and running and the pastor healthy to bringing added peace to your families and other relationships. And also it may mean certain suffering. As we've noted in this series, we are, quote, predestined to suffer for Christ's sake. That's from a few lessons back. We are predestined to suffer. And that too is part of Him working out all things good for those who love God. Whatever the case may be, what the Spirit's been telling us is simple. That His causing all things to work together for good means that certain fruit, with His divine stamp of goodness on it, will be born in each of our souls as believers. 
And that's what we're to look for, experiential sanctification. Uh, it's not always what we think it is. And that's part of the learning process. That's why we study the Word of God, to realize that you know, the spiritual life isn't counted the way the world would count blessings even. I mean, how many people talk like, I think it was in chapter 5 of Acts, like the apostles talk, hey, this is awesome. We've been persecuted for Jesus' sake. We've suffered for His name's sake. That's not something you necessarily would get out of the world as a doctrine. The world will tell you, you must be doing something wrong. You better shape up, buddy. The Word says, no, you're destined, predestined to suffer for my sake. And that's part of all things working together for good. And so there's a perspective change, and that's the process that we're going through. So much of sanctification, if you haven't figured it out yet, is a change of perspective. So we will bear good fruit as believers. All the Think about it. All the new creature can do is produce good fruit. It isn't able to otherwise. Think about that. All the new creature can do is produce good fruit. It isn't able to do otherwise. Likewise, on the other side of the fence, all the old man, the flesh, can do is produce bad fruit. Go to Matthew 7.17. Jesus describes this in the parable, if you would, of trees using the analog of trees. Matthew 7.17. So we know dogmatically from Scripture, and this is just one instance of it uh, in parable form, that the new creature can only produce good and the old creature can only produce bad. Matthew seven seventeen. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, it's true. We may not understand every last element of salvation even, sanctification, or even fruit bearing in time. But as we've been taught recently, this reality has zero Zero to do with dogmatic theology found in Scripture. Whether we understand something fully is not the issue. That never changes what God has to say about, say, His perfect law. That never changes commands found in the Bible. That never changes dogmatic theology that's stated plainly in Scripture. So it's not an issue of whether or not we can fully understand things. It's an issue of faith. If God says it's so, then guess what? It's so. If He says He's going to sanctify you, you may say, I don't know how you're going to do that. And it doesn't matter that you don't know how He's going to do that. What matters is that you show up, that you're humble. That's what matters. And then He gives grace to the humble. And in that sense, He will sanctify you. Because by faith you receive, or by grace you receive faith, And faith is what pleases Him. So to borrow a few principles from the beginning of the month, up here on the board, I'm just driving this home a little bit, determining truth, whatever theology is clearly stated in the Scriptures, is the truth about a matter. 
experiences can only complement or be interpreted by the correct theology. So we're not supposed to turn it around and make our experiences theology. The natural man is befuddled by the supernatural laws of God. We might look at them as spiritual, quote, paradoxes. We looked at one in, what, Philippians 2, 12, and 13 this whole past week. Paradoxes, things that seem difficult for human rational thinking to sort of reconcile. And that's fine, because that's where faith comes in. You're not supposed to be able to rationalize uh, supernatural things the way you would, say, you know, red and blue get together to make purple. There are things that we simply cannot comprehend, though these things are fundamental to our faith. Now that's something to swallow, isn't it? There are things that we simply cannot comprehend, though they are literally fundamental to our faith, to the faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. So to the rational mind, these are so-called paradoxes. Oh, how can that be? How can both of these things be true? And yet they are. I mean, how do you explain the unity in the Trinity? How do you explain three persons but one Godhead? How do you explain the God-man? How do you explain that Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man? How do you explain that? I don't know. But I have faith that it's true. So, since God is infinite, His theology is also. And the flesh hates it. Why? Because the flesh, a bunch of control freaks. I don't like not being able to rationalize everything. feels like I'm out of control. I like to control things. That's the flesh. But God is infinite, and so is theology is too. There's lots of things in the Bible that we simply just have to accept on faith. We were then given some perspective to chew on. And again, I'm still borrowing from the beginning of the month. Theology versus application. Theology lays out principles. Life is where those principles are applied. The Bible gives us insight into both. The common error is to make theology out of human experiences, even as they are recorded in Scripture. For example, Job's wife, the Corinthian failures, uh, you know, this, that, whatever. We've looked at this ad nauseum now. These were all wonderfully timed principles that the Spirit gave us at the beginning of the month, and we've substantiated each of them through Scripture along the way. They were well-timed also, given their support of the following principle that we received recently relative to fruit-bearing. True believers will produce fruit because God says so. And if they don't for a time, He'll rectify it because He says He will. And if they never come back, let's say, they look like they're bearing fruit, they leave, and then they literally never come back, They were never his child in the first place because they are what Scripture calls apostates or apostates. I elaborated on a particular passage on Thursday that I need to review quickly this morning simply to drive the point to closure in your souls. But first, before we even read that Scripture, remember that Jesus is teaching in a parable format. 
Everybody hold up their arm. Like this, just like this. Look at it. Is it a branch? No. Is it a twig? Some of you. Is it a tree trunk? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jim. Come on, Jim. I'm giving you. <laughs> so you know you're not a branch, right? So just remember that, will you? Just remember that and stop trying to dig out weird things. Well, because we're a branch, you see, we have little twigs and leaves and chlorophyll on the leaves and photosynthesis happens out here. And that's what he was getting at. That's sanctification, photosynthesis. Shut up. Shut up. Seriously. Cut it out. He's talking about a parable here, so relax there, chief. Remember that Jesus is teaching in parable format, which means we can't overanalyze it. Looking for details that just aren't there. There's plenty of places in Scripture where dogmatic, clearly stated theology is in print. Whoop. There it is, right in print. But when Jesus talks in parable format, He's trying to drive something fundamental home. But let us not make it more than what it actually is. Go to John 15.1. With that said, John 15.1, I'm going to go quickly because I think it's the third time we've been through this. But I shared some insight with you on Thursday that's worth reviewing. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now, as I intimated on Thursday evening, verse 2 got me digging deep into Scripture and even the original Greek because the English left a few things, let's say, open, so to speak. And that's okay, but it's what spawned a little study on my own. It turns out that this openness is acceptable in the sense that even though there are three different potential common interpretations of it, none of them compromise the point on the board. So I don't do this often, but I want to show you what I mean. First, we looked at John 15:2. Again, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So I gave you the original Greek, mayferon, does not bear, not plus bearing, is in the present tense active voice, implying a lifestyle. For example... A tree in hibernation does not bear fruit as it's out of season. If that tree never bears fruit, then it is dead. Okay. The first, and again, we're looking at three interpretations, and I'm doing this on purpose because I'm trying to open up the way that all of you read parables. Because I believe we constrict them too much. We superimpose this fleshly desire to just 
cut it up into a billion pieces and say things that just aren't there. And then base theology, base our personal theology on things that just weren't even being addressed, let's say. Where certain things are addressed clearly elsewhere in Scripture. So the first and second interpretations that I shared with you suggest that Jesus is saying that there are some he calls out as, quote, branches that aren't bearing fruit, at least for a season. The third interpretation suggests that some branches in the vine, so to speak, will never bear fruit, for they are apostates. So those are the three common interpretations regarding verse 2. So the first phrase in view, does not bear, opens up three possible interpretations, four to be exact, because there are some people out there that, in total error, say that you can be a believer and then be lost, which means eternal security is shot. I'm not even going to address that. I'm not even going to address that, because that's not true. Now, before we continue, we need to do due diligence on the rest of the verse, though. So again, verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, I just gave you the Greek on that, he takes away, up here on the board from Ire, he takes away, means to raise, to take up, to lift, is in the present, active voice, indicative mood, dogmatic statement of fact, in context, can mean one of three things, depending on the interpretation that you're, say, uh, subscribing to. But I caution you not to overthink parables in general. God lifts up, here's the first one, God lifts up a believer to bearing fruit. In other words, if you're not bearing fruit for a season, then He's going to make you bear fruit. Or... God lifts up a believer to heaven, the sin unto death. There's something you're doing as a believer that's so whatever to God, He's just going to take you out. Or God throws, this is the third one, God throws the unbeliever into hell. That's a view of the apostate. But here's the nice thing about dogmatically stated Scripture or theology in Scripture elsewhere, outside of a parable even, in all possibility, God actively makes something happen. God actively makes something happen. So, to summarize the three interpretations of verse 2, under the first interpretation, then, God never allows a believer to live a lifestyle without taking some action that will change it. Under the second interpretation, God takes a believer out of this world due to certain sinfulness. Don't ask me what the sin unto death is because it's not mine to judge. And under the third interpretation, the branch in view is an apostate, which God takes away and burns as judgment in the lake of fire. In support of that third interpretation, we also looked at the so-called for lack of a better term, the doctrine of branches. Well, how do branches, like trees, how do trees show up? We know that what Jesus just said in Matthew 7 about trees, a tree bears fruit after its kind. Okay. Well, we might say that's a bit of a doctrine of trees in the Bible. Go back to Genesis, that's what God said. Trees will bear fruit after their kind. 
Jesus said it in Matthew and so on. So we know about trees in the Bible and how they're generally used. We might call that the, quote, doctrine of trees and fruit bearing. Okay. But what about branches and vines and that kind of a thing and roots? How about where those things are used? So we looked at where Paul used it as well, who clearly talked about branches being in and then out and then grafted back in again. And so we might add this idea of in and out as a branch as part of the, quote, doctrine of branches. What are branches allowed to do when they're spoken of in the Bible? Go to Romans 11.19. And again, I'm speaking in terms, in the realm of the third interpretation. These are the arguments that if someone subscribes to the third interpretation, that the branches in verse 2, John 15, are actually apostates. This is where they might take you to say, see, branches can be in and then out again. And it doesn't, quote, compromise Scripture. Romans 11.19. But I'm going to argue something different at the end of all this that's kind of loose you all, depending on... Well, we'll see. It's going to loosen you all up on all this stuff. Romans 11.19. You, Gentiles in view, will say then, Jewish branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. It implies an initial starting point of being in. They were broken off. They were on. But you stand by your faith, do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Interesting. Behold, in other words, God can throw out branches, in other words, that were originally on, if you would. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And the word again implies, obviously, previously being in. So, in support of that third interpretation of John 15.2, and again, the reference to branches being apostates, Paul clearly talks about branches being in and then out and then grafted back in again. With the focus on John 15 being on that so-called branches can be broken off, a.k.a. apostatize. In other words, that's what apostasy is. I've taught you this, that you are, quote, in the faith for a while, but then you denounce it. You go to church, you follow even some of God's commands, but your heart hasn't actually been changed. You're not actually saved, you're just going through the motions, and your people on your left and your right are completely convinced that you're wheat when you're actually a tear, to use another one of Jesus' parables. You look exactly the same, that's what Jesus was saying in that parable, but at the end, He's going to gather you up and burn you in the lake of fire, because you never were one of His own. And that's what it means in this interpretation, to be a branch that's thrown out. So this means logically, up here on the board, parable branches, and I'm speaking generally here, just because Scripture calls out a branch, we just saw this in Romans 11, it doesn't always refer strictly to believers. 
We just saw it in Romans 11. Rather, it establishes a certain relationship to the vine, the tree, the root, whatever's in view in Scripture. John 15, 2, and I have the star there because that's, we're developing that third interpretation. Romans 11, 16, and 24. So, given the nature of our study on this particular topic, I want, you, I want to share something else that I've learned over the past few years, and it's regarding parables. And this is where I'm hoping you'll just kind of loosen up a little bit, okay? A lot of you have this tendency, and I know the history behind it, to overanalyze parables, way overanalyze them, and it's to your own detriment. And I have done it myself. I did it for years. And the funniest thing is, when you're analytical like I am, and you go digging into areas that there's not enough data, what you end up finding is other idiots like you have compounded the situation by running off in these long-winded explanations of why it's this that's being said, and why is that being said. And all of here's the funniest thing. All of the arguments are viable. The problem is they shouldn't be attached to the parable. In other words, it's like, do angels have belly buttons? Oh, well, let me show you some scripture right now. They do. And then this guy over here, well, let me show you scripture why they don't. Well, then a third guy, well, let me tell you, and none of it's actually articulated. But everybody's like talking about it as if they know. And the scope of the thing that it started with gets lost in the shuffle. So what are we doing? What the heck are we doing? We're being idiots. So I'm thinking of titling. I finished my book. The next book's going to be out probably in the next couple of weeks, by the way. It's called Religion by Any Other Name. It's a short one. It's only 50 pages or so. But I'm thinking of titling my next book, How to Read a Parable. How to read a parable, because I don't think most people know how. Parables. Man has a tendency to impose his own restrictions on parables in the Bible. Parables are predominantly meant to drive a single point or two home. They are not meant to be plucked apart and forced to shed light on things outside of their primary scope of revelation. Again, man has a tendency to impose his own restrictions on the parables in the Bible. Parables are predominantly meant to drive a single point or two home. They are not meant to be plucked apart and forced to shed light on things outside of their primary scope of revelation. So case in point, and please concentrate, this is somewhat difficult to teach. In Romans 11, when Paul speaks about branches, remember the ones that are broken in and out and you know, back in again, he's obviously simply trying to drive a point home, which is fundamentally that Israel is cut off for a time due to their national unbelief, with the basic principle being that a branch cannot survive apart from its trunk or root. Isn't that the most 
important message? If you walk outside right now, we all grab the branch off a tree and we break it off and we throw it on the ground, what's the life expectancy of the branch? Nothing. That's the parable. Do you understand? And God supernaturally is able to take that branch, believe it or not, and graft it back in. And it lives again. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's it, though. Stop right there. Oh, but wait a minute. What's he saying? Did he break it at a 30-degree angle? Because when he broke it at a 30-degree angle, I talked, I talked to, I went down to the Aggie school and talked to a professional branch breaker, pruner guy, and he said if you break it off at this degree, it's possible you could jam it into the ground and it'll grow fruit on its own. It's unbelievable. I tell you, that's what Jesus was getting at. Well, aren't you just the wisest cracker in the, in the group? Aren't you just smarty pants? I know, it's amazing. I look in the mirror and I'm like, I don't even have to comb my hair this morning. I just woke up fabulous. This is the garbage that people do to beautiful things like parables. So the basic principle that Paul was getting at, really, that he was driving home was, listen, a branch is not going to survive apart from its root or its trunk. That is the message, and that's it. Now, to impose a requirement on the parable Paul's using would be a mistake. For example, to try to squeeze out some notion regarding individual unbelievers, individual unbelievers within the nation Israel would be compromising the integrity of the scripture. Paul's talking about a nation. Do we have the right to hack up a parable and start making more out of it than what it is? Start talking about the salvation status of each individual within the nation Israel? I don't think that's exactly what the parable was getting at, my friends. In other words, if a parable doesn't allow for certain specifics, then we can't impose them, even though we desire to draw certain conclusions. This is why I shared my little sidebar on John 15 too. Because I went down the road. And I'm like, all right. And that's fair. It's good because when you get to the end of it, you go, okay, that must be a situation where it's not that important or it's not what was being actually stressed in that space. In Scripture, there's plenty of other Scripture that'll help me with these points that I'm considering as possibilities. But our flesh keeps digging. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with digging into Scripture, we know that we're supposed to be diligent, but you've got to know when to stop, my friends. You've got to know when the Bible says, that's not here. What you're looking for is somewhere else. Go somewhere else to look for clarity on that subject. But it's not here. The emphasis was this thing. And in your quest to make something specific, you've missed the big picture. Ah. Oh. We all know what happens when you miss the big picture. Insets, confusion, strife between believers, even in the churches. Oh, well, I think it means this. Well, I think it means that. 
well, let's just break bonds and go separate ways. Satan's like, I got another one. Yeah, that was perfect. That's exactly what I wanted. Two idiots complaining about something that's not there. That's the flesh. So if a parable doesn't allow for certain specifics, then we can't impose them. Even though we desire to draw certain conclusions, parables aren't meant to be dissected ad nauseum. I mean, I have books on my shelf. I kid you not. Books this thick on the parables. And guess what? You ready for this? It's going to bother some of you. They're from different so-called theologians, and none of them agree. At least not 100%. I kid you not. None of them agree. <laughs> so that says to me, okay, if you get really smart, and I'm assuming these are saved individuals, I'm not challenging their whatever, but if you've got really smart PhD-type individuals that all they do is study the Word, and they each come up with a different interpretation of a parable, something that Jesus said the simplest child should be able to understand, you know what that says to me? You're all looking for things. You're, you're turning over rocks that aren't even there. It's unfortunate. How else can we say it? It's unfortunate. Parables aren't meant to be dissected ad nauseum. They are meant to be consumed whole. So a general rule or theme may be understood. Frankly, this has been one of the greatest revelations in my own life, my own studies, one of the greatest areas of freedom for me. Let me give you a parable of sorts, albeit a very brief one. Men are pigs. And all they want to do is run around and have sex. End of parable. That is a parable. Parable of the man pig. You're all laughing, right? Okay. So let's talk about this. Men are like pigs, always running around trying to have sex with everyone. Some of you may laugh at that or even scorn it because there's a certain truth to it based on the flesh of men. So there is a certain truth to it, isn't there? Which is why you laughed. Indeed, there is. But I want to reflect on this for a moment. There's also a certain vernacular that we share in the United States where this statement actually makes sense. In other words, there's a certain culture that we live in where this statement, as odd as it sounds, makes sense. In other words, there's a context to the audience. It is quite possible, if I were teaching this morning in another country, the audience may not understand me at all. I might have been chased off stage. Let's, let's face it. Men are pigs! Oh, here they come, right? Whoa, wait a minute. Just kidding. It was an American saying, well, you ain't in America, my friend. We're going to chase you out of our country. So there's a context, even, to parables. So, now, undoubtedly, some of you are offended by such a statement, as I am, although I totally get it. I get it. I know what is being said there. But why the offense? Because not all men are like that, even though many are. But that doesn't matter, does it? 
the point of the parable was made, and you all laughed. Because you know exactly, in context, what I was trying to say. My point is that to make the original point, we considered a secular proverb, or excuse me, secular parable of sorts, where men were or are equated to pigs. Now, presumably, you all knew what I was trying to convey, which means that the parable did its job. You know what I was trying to say, don't you? You know exactly what I was trying to say. The parable, then, did its job. Okay, end of story. However, if a person spends too long on that statement, they might start saying things like, well, is he trying to say that men have hoofed feet? Or smell like pigs, too? Some might speculate. (laughs) Or they might ask, and what kind of pigs? Because I'm a farmer (laughs) from a family of farmers. What kind of pigs is he getting at? Is he talking about those big furry kind that wallow in the mire like three, four hundred pounds? Or is he talking about one of the little pot-belly pigs, a cute one? And are these the same pigs that the Bible talks about in, say, 2 Peter 2.22? It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Is he talking about these pigs? Are you serious? i got to go into that detail with you? You already got the point. Move on. Amen? You got the point. Move on. You're going to ruin it. What kind of pigs? What species? Give me the Latin derivative of that species. (laughs) Then I will show you my intellect on piggies. And I will show you what the true meaning of that parable actually was. He was talking about unbelievers. He was talking about grotesque. This is what he really meant. For real, no. I meant some guys like to go out and chase women and have sex because that's what their flesh wants to do. End of story. Cut it out. Now, some of you might be laughing to yourselves right now, saying... Whoever's asking all these questions needs to stop. They are totally missing the point. And you'd be right. You'd be right. This is precisely what I'm trying to teach you regarding any parable, especially those in the Bible. Hence, our previous principles up here on the board. Parable branches. Just because Scripture calls out a branch, it doesn't always refer strictly to believers. Rather, it establishes a certain relationship to the vine, tree, root, whatever's in view. You break a branch off, it dies. Whose eternal life? God is. You break off from the giver of life, then you die, spiritually speaking. Okay, leave it there then. End of story. In other words, God's saying, life is in me, my son, through my son. 
Man has a tendency, though, to impose his own restrictions on the parables in the Bible. Parables are predominantly meant to drive a single point or two home. They are not meant to be plucked apart and forced to shed light on things outside of their primary scope of revelation. There's a context. Who was Jesus even talking to? And why was he saying this parable? Read the rest of the Bible around it. What's the context here? Seriously, what's the context? Let's not try to make it more than what it is. He was trying to make a point. Wasn't it obvious? A child would read it and say, that seems pretty obvious to me. Oh, no, no, no. Let me tell you about piggies. Shut up. Let me tell you about this thing. No, stop it. You're ruining it. But that's what the flesh does. If a parable doesn't allow for certain specifics, then we can't impose them. And you need to be okay with it. You just say, you know what? That wasn't even in view. That wasn't the point of the parable. So let's not split hairs over this thing. So if a parable doesn't allow for certain specifics, then we can't impose them. Even though we desire to draw certain conclusions in our flesh sometimes, parables aren't meant to be dissected ad nauseum. They are meant to be consumed whole, so a general rule or theme may be understood. It's because of the nature of parables in general that I'm able to comfortably share with you that there are three interpretations with respect to, for example, John 15:2, that have reasonable arguments to them. That's why I shared it. And based on what I just taught you regarding interpreting parables in general, you too ought to be comfortable with this. You should say there are certain passages of Scripture that just don't speak. It's possible the author was relating to certain... It's possible there was an overlap. It's possible there was a tinge of this doctrine or a tinge of that one in view. But the primary reason for it wasn't those things at all. So to go off and try to put little, to corral doctrines and coddle things together that weren't supposed to be even in consideration is a mistake. So you too should be comfortable with what I'm teaching. It should be setting you free, frankly, if you understand it. My point is simply that you must learn to read parables correctly in keeping with the intended context and scope of the parables. Now, I don't want to make anybody red-faced. I didn't realize it was going to do to Todd this morning. But <laughs> parables are like Michelangelo's statue of David. Have you ever seen that? It's beautiful, right? Now, he's naked, so I didn't realize it was going to be a problem. But I put it up here, and him and Bill are like, Whoa. Come on, guys! <laughs> this is it. He's naked. Oh, my goodness. But this is Michelangelo's statue of David. Now, if you look at this sculpture, you should... I mean, it's beautiful. There's a reason why people adore this sculpture, because it's beautiful. I mean, the human form in general is beautiful. But if you don't see beauty, whatever, that's what I see. However, if we begin ripping the arms and legs off of the statue and we go take them into back rooms to study them out of context. I walk up to the statue, I rip his arm off, and I go running away with it, scurrying away, because I'm a PhD in arms, 
and I run away in a back room and I take my microscope out. There's no context. I think I'm missing the point. I, I ruined the statue by ripping the arm off. Did I not? So if we do that thing, what happens, what happens to the author, Michelangelo's intention for that? It's ruined. It's ruined. It's only valuable as a whole. It's ruined. It's the same with parables, folks. This is what I'm trying to teach you. We must read them as a whole, knowing that the writer intended to drive home a certain principle of doctrine and nothing more. Nothing more. Did David, does David, does Michelangelo, did Michelangelo really care if you understood what kind of material he used? Did he? Do you know what kind of material he used? I mean, I'd guess, but I'll probably, I'd definitely be wrong. But does it matter? Was that his intention? Rip his arm off, take a chunk from the inside of his broken arm, and evaluate it in a crucible, and you tell me what kind of material it is, then you'll have my full intention as Michelangelo, the great artist. Then you'll understand the deeper meaning of that statue. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's what people do to parables. They rip them apart. And they make books and pamphlets and they argue ad nauseum with each other why it's this and that. Oh, no, it's clay. No, it isn't. It's dirt. No, it isn't. It's paper mache. Did they have that back then? Probably not. I don't think you could do that with it anyways, but because you show I'm not an artist. So I'm just saying, you know what I mean? Oh, no, it's this. It's that. You, you, got, you idiots. You idiots. It's a masterpiece. And you guys are abominating it. That's what people do to parables. So we must read parables as a whole, knowing that the writer intended to drive home a certain principle of doctrine and nothing more. For example, the more we try to literally equate men to pigs in our secular parable, the more we will stray from the truth. If you learn to read parables correctly, what you'll find, and this is the great blessing here, what you'll find is that they are like sculptures, beautiful and effective at conveying our great author's intentions. But they exist as a full sculpture. They exist as a whole sculpture, not as bits and pieces hacked into so-called doctrines that possibly don't even exist. What are we doing? So to bring this full circle, when you read, say, for example, John 15, read it with a lens like this. Is it possible that Jesus was simply sharing, and I'm not forcing this on you, I'm just asking you a question. Is it possible that Jesus was simply sharing the nature of the relationship between a vine and branches when he made the strong statement that the vine dresser God doesn't care for fruitless branches? 
You might even challenge your own traditional thinking and ponder whether or not Jesus' intention was to even make distinctions between believers and unbelievers, strictly speaking. Strictly speaking. I'm not going to lead you any further in that endeavor as I risk saying too much and possibly hindering the Spirit's good work in you, so I will stop there for now. But please know that I have much more to say on the topic. He's just saying to me in this moment, let them find their own aha moments. It's much better for you to go, for a light bulb to go off, than for me to go, hey, hold this light bulb. And that's my prayer for you. That you learn to read parables. Because there are lots of them, and lots of them are in red letters that you learn to read parables the right way and that you're set free. All right, back to our instigating passage. Go to John 15.1. John 15.1. I'm going to pray on that book. Maybe he'll let me write it. Maybe he won't. Maybe that did its job. I don't know. John 15.1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him. He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Cast them into the fire. I gave you some more on that. Scripture depicts, up here on the board, Scripture depicts the burning by fire as ultimate judgment, as that reserved for unbelievers, Matthew 7, 19, 13, 40 to 42. For example, Matthew 7:19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Regardless of the three aforementioned interpretation cases, our main theology remains pristine, bringing it full circle, which is really this, regarding fruit bearing. This has been untouched. Regardless of the interpretation that you are comfortable with, let's say, and again, I would Bear in mind, do not over-interpret it. Do not, don't do that to yourself. Don't say, oh, I like interpretation number two. Well, I like three. Maybe you should just think about what he just told you and taught you about parables in general. Maybe you shouldn't necessarily be thinking about that. Maybe there was a certain intimacy that Jesus was trying to convey to his disciples. Maybe that was the main theme. I don't know. I do, but you know what I mean. True believers will produce fruit because God says so. We've seen it in Scripture. And if they don't for a time, He'll rectify it because He says He will. And if they never can come back, they never were His child in the first place because they are what Scripture calls apostates. We've seen that in Scripture. Okay. Believe it or not, all of that was the result of our reading this oh-so-familiar verse up here on the board. Romans 8.28, 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, believers, to those who are called according to his purpose. All of that was to amplify this thing, that God will cause all things to work together for those who love him. And just to help amplify this in your souls up here on the board, in the Amplified, and we know with great confidence that God, who is deeply concerned about us, causes all things to work together as a plan for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his plan and purpose. He's not going to make a mistake, in other words. If he saved you, he's going to sanctify you. And there's going to be certain fruit in your life. You're going to say, man, I, I've changed. I've literally been changed, haven't I? Yes, you have actually literally been changed. Not going to be changed, not, no. There has to be a change in your perspective, because even though you have been changed at the instance of your, or the instant of your salvation, you became a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's a fact. God says, I'm satisfied with that one. That one's coming to heaven. That thing that wraps you up, that body, ew. and you have to deal with both of them in time. So you got remnants, vestiges, if you would, of sin. You've got the new creature. They kind of play a tug of war. It's all super. Don't ask me to draw it. They're playing tug of war. Somewhere in the middle, you're making decisions with your own free will about which one to listen to. You get the spirit in the mix saying, listen to the new creature. Listen to my word. Listen to the pure things in this world. Don't listen to your bad roommate. And your bad roommate's like, I know, it's just this once. Nobody will know. (laughs) Right? And that's Romans 7. That's Paul. Oh my, I don't do the things I want to do. I'm doing things I don't, you know. Who will free me from this body of death? So we are still studying the finer details of experiential sanctification. Remember that. And what the Spirit's been doing for us is simplifying and actualizing the spiritual life. For many have over-doctrinalized and over-spiritualized the spiritual life. And so experiential sanctification has become something religious even. Something to strive for in the flesh. If you hear the term experiential sanctification and your first thing is to become religious about it, I win. I sanctified. I'm spiritual mature first. I won. <laughs> if that, that's not the race God, or Paul was talking about, by the way. You're not racing against your neighbors. It's the mental attitude, if you would, of wanting to please God. That's of wanting to be pleasing to God, of wanting to get out of the way, of wanting to resist the devil and have him flee from you. That's, that's what spiritual maturity looks like. And when you're there, you're not celebrating at the cost of the people that are still struggling. Spiritual maturity does not look like that. That's called spiritual adolescence at best. That's sophomorism. Wise morons. Thinking they're, as Paul would say, much more than they actually are. That's not experiential sanctification either. Jesus Christ was meek. 
He bounced babies on his knee. He said, if you want to be the greatest, you idiots, then be a servant. That's what maturity looks like. And don't force the hand. Don't say, oh, okay, so I'll just be a servant and I'll prove myself mature. Woo, I win again. That's just another religion respun for your idiotic flesh. So stop striving. That's what we do. We even come to church. It's unbelievable. We come to church and say, ain't I wonderful? And I came way more than that guy. Loser. Winner. Loser. Winner. I win. I get more beans in my basket because every time I come, I get a little bean. I put it in myself. God's like, what are you doing? Hey, hey. Right? I take some of those Portuguese donuts, throw them in there. I shellac them. I bronze them as proof that I've been there more than anybody else. You see, you don't have a Portuguese donut in your basket because you weren't there the the one day that we had Portuguese donuts. Mine is bronze right here for the world to see. We're idiots. Idiots. All we're looking for, many of us, definitely whenever we're in our flesh, is to stratify, to make ourselves better than the next person. And if that's what experiential sanctification means to you, you've literally missed the entire boat. You're the person who likely does read parables and adds all kinds of garbage to it and then makes an issue out of it. That's usually the same person you see. Because they've missed, the, they've missed it. I don't know what else to say. They missed the heart of Christ. They missed the mind of Christ. They missed the whole thing. So the Spirit's been simplifying and actualizing the spiritual life for us. Some have over-doctrinalized, over-spiritualized it. And so experiential sanctification has become something religious even, something to strive for in the flesh for some. And so we've been given a triplet of principles as a summary of so much of our work as of late up here in the board. Speaking of experiential sanctification, by grace God changes us. By grace He's made us new creatures in Christ. We have new natures that are perfect, therefore can only do His good will. The new us is willingly humble. I think I got that from uh, James 4.6 in the message. Willingly humble. The new us is willingly humble and supernaturally fellowships with God making our fruit-bearing a collaborative joint labor even. That's that paradox we noted in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Experiential sanctification, to avoid assigning any creature credit in the process, in the production of divine good fruit in our lives, we simply refer back to Scripture which says, but by the grace of God I am what I am, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. God has qualified us to work with Him in Christ. So we are joint laborers, so to speak, so says Scripture. We are not somehow passive robots, though, whose free will is merely an academic construct that God invented to appease our flesh's desire for independence. In other words, you didn't just say, I'm just going to tell you have a free will, but because it's you know, me and my sovereignty, you're just going to do whatever I want you to do, period, anyways. Well, then where's the free will, right? That's that paradox that I started class with. The sovereign will of God versus your free will. Don't overcook it. We just know it's true. You have a free will, and God does everything He wants to be done. And all things work together for those who, for good for those who love Him. How that works? How do I know? 
Because I have a hard enough time putting one foot in front of the other nowadays, given my knee condition. We are not somehow passive robots whose free will is merely an academic construct that God invented to appease our flesh's desire for independence. At salvation, he literally changed us. It's because of that grace activity that we are able to join him in accomplishing his will in time. We even, check this out, we even desire obedience. You know why? Because that's all the new creature can do. It's all it's meant to do. It's all it can do. It's all it's equipped to do. It wants to, to obey God. Why? Because that's true goodness. I mean, look at, uh, read the end of Ecclesiastes 12 when Solomon says at the end of it all, what does he say? Obey his commands. Fear God. Obey his, keep his commands. That's the end of it all. After all that stuff he wrote about in life, all these so-called experiments that he went through in life, at the end of it all he said, fear God and keep his commandments, for that's what's good. That, that's it. That's what I have to say. <laughs> and a believer has that innate in themselves. The other perspective we considered on Thursday was what we might call the ultimate perspective and I'm just dubbing this a certain way, the ultimate perspective, right? And by the way, it is a very useful tool in your arsenal that you always have available to you, especially since I've taught most of you the features and nature of heaven not that long ago. It hasn't been that long, right? Remember we talked about Satan's abodes and the heaven and all that good stuff? Well, you should draw on that. You should draw on that knowledge that you have. You should draw on your understanding of what heaven's going to be like and who you are going to be in heaven. I call that the, the ultimate perspective. We're not there yet, but ultimately, when we call that ultimate sanctification, ultimately, we're going to be there. And we know the Bible has an awful lot to say about what it's ultimately going to be like in heaven, which is awesome because we can say, well, what, what are we taking with us to heaven, by the way? We taking this thing? No, no, no. But we're taking the new creature. Oh. So we're taking a new creature. So what's true about the new creature then should be consistent with the new creature now. Unless Scripture says otherwise, which it doesn't. You've been changed. You've been made perfect in Christ Jesus. You have a new creature. And once you're minus this thing and you have a resurrection body that doesn't frustrate God's plan, you're going to be ultimately sanctified. Well, what does that look like? Because then that maybe will give me perspective on now. So the so-called ultimate perspective simply looks at our future existence in heaven. And so we ask ourselves, is God a puppeteer or not? Is he going to be like a puppeteer? No. Your theology will have to either suggest that you can do good things, for example, your new creature, or you will have to propose that God is an eternal puppeteer. And just consider heaven for clarity. What's it going to be? And you have to decide that. I know what Scripture says. But if you're saved, you've been changed. And that same changed new creature is going to go to heaven, and all it wants to do is worship God. How do you worship Him now? What's your service of worship? Read Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
Lay down your entire life, your body. That's your service of worship to Him. In other words, obey His commands. If He says, lay down your life for others, obey His commands. And even if you're not doing it, you, your new creature wants to do it. It doesn't want to do anything else. That's the point. The very existence of that in your life is good fruit. That's all a thing can produce. A good tree can only do what? Bear good fruit. A bad tree can only bear bad fruit. <laughs> you got a new nature, you got an old nature. One bears good fruit, that's all it can do. One bears bad fruit, that's all it can do. You, what the Spirit's saying is you need to identify with the one you're going to be with for all of eternity. The new creature. Identify with that one. Use ultimate perspective to gain perspective in the now. And it really is you. And that's the point. Make it personal. Like, cry over it. Weep over it. Say, I cannot believe that you gave me this thing, this new creature, that I've been born again in Christ Jesus. This is phenomenal. You mean you gave me this? I don't have to work for it? No. This isn't college. This isn't grade school. You know, this isn't a job. By grace, I gave you. I made you. For real? Yeah, for real. So he's not a puppeteer. He's literally changed you. So all you really want to do anyways is obey him, worship him, love him. Now, before we press on into new territory, and I think I'm, you know what? I think I'm going to stop there. I think I'm going to stop there. I'm going to show you a nice little video, and uh, we'll just pick up on Tuesday.
Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for giving us this time to fellowship together in the unity of the faith and for reminding us of how very fragile, disturbing, and often confusing life is without you at the center of it. We thank you, Father, for reconciling us to you through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for making each day we're alive, something to celebrate. For our great hope is yet in front of us. For this, we are eternally grateful. We pray for those still struggling, Father, that they might see the light, the true light of the world, the very sustenance of life, the bread of life himself, and that they accept the free gift of salvation, not by mere mental assent, but in their hearts, for your word states, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized into union with Christ. We bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, that we do pray. Amen. Thank you.